So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. And so it was working hand in hand with the more linear strategy side and then taking it and expanding it. So my brief would cover 25 different things across technology and culture and competitive a little bit to be looking at because then it allows people that runway. Unfortunately, when you have innovation on the door, People come by and say, what's that? Can we do that in VR? Oftentimes they're referring to AR <laughs> when they come by or... Oh. Welcome to Innovation and in Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Mordecai. Mordecai, thanks for making time for this. Thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about what it is to be an innovation executive. Oh, it's just a little bit of disruption and a lot of hope. (laughs) You know, it's... Implementing, I mean, innovation in my world is culture, technology, and just simply good ideas. So it's weaving those across the company. And and tell us a little bit about the story to getting to here in, in Ocean and some of the stuff you've done. So my journey is as nonlinear as most innovators and founders in that I started in music and entertainment. I was at the days that are sort of nostalgic by a lot of Gen Z right now. I was at MTV in the late 90s, early 2000s. So for the Britney NSYNC era, um, I was there and sort of at the forefront of culture at that period. And then as I started to do my career, I noticed that I always wanted to be at the forefront of culture and technology. I wanted to be at the front of digital series when those came about. I worked with the team that did Kate Modern that sort of pioneered these episodics in that space. And eventually, one of my colleagues said, I just think you just like to innovate. And I, you know, didn't know that such a career existed. You know, they don't really say, I mean, beyond science and technology, there wasn't this sense of, you could be a marketing innovator, you could be a creative innovator. That really wasn't something that you got out the goalpost for and went for at 15. I mean, I wanted to be an astronaut first. So, (laughs) you know, who knows? But in that space, I was like, I think I am. And I have loved every second of developing what that is. And, you know, during my time with Notion and Hyundai, even creating the innovations group there and defining what that is and how we practice it. And, and for people who don't know, uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about Inocean? I mean, it looks like their stock price is like a trillion dollars American. They're so big. <laughs> well, Notion is a part of Hyundai Motor Group. And so it's their advertising agency based out of Korea. Same as, same as Hyundai in that space. And then they 
you know, do great Super Bowl ads, different spaces like that. And I joined them several years ago. I have since left, but I did create innovation and partnerships there that went across the business. So I sat on the collaboration innovation board for Hyundai Corporate and supported some of the ventures work that Hyundai Cradle does, and then also got into the marketing. So did a lot about pioneering AR for the company, which you will see more and more of. And really making sure that everything that's being done in innovation, it could look like a fun stunt, like the fun thing that, you know, a lot of the teams, it's it's really, innovation can be so great for talent retention because people are like, oh, that was so cool. And I got to be a part of it. But my job is to make it business practical. So why are we doing this really cool thing? Where will it evolve to? And so a lot of that, particularly around augmented reality came to play. And then some of the culture and business side. Yeah. So like, what's an example of, of what you did in AR? So specifically, I did a partnership with Live Nation. We launched an AR live viewer. So instead of the standard way in which you were watching live streams, which, you know, is quite a business right now, but at that time, it was just about a year and a half ago. And we debuted it with Live Nation and you could turn the viewer a few times. We had a all new 2020 Sonata at the time come out in augmented reality And really, it was, you know, there was a lot of music. Billie Eilish was a headliner. Lizzo was a headliner. So you see, like, very cool cultural moment. We announced it at Cannes Lions, similar, you know, all of those sort of hype things that really brought it to the forefront. But then on the back side, you know, the roadmap of augmented reality, again, on on my side, what I have to be responsible for is I then met with Google and we put the Sonata into search. So... That really brings a scale to it. We also saw how long people engaged in the technology through the Live Nation partnership, which was quite substantial. So it really validated bringing that into the purchase decision process. And do we need to have, you know, 360 videos? Do we need to have augmented reality? Do we just need to bring cars to the right places? So when you have something that happens such as COVID, you really have the opportunity to change what the digital retail solutions are. And then in that, because we had already tested AR, we had looked at it for engagement, we had brought it to scale, and then we can now bring it into the purchase price, like process of that. You know, it's such an interesting company. We had Jason Garner on the show recently, who was the global CEO of music for Live Nation, you know, and hearing about how some of that business had evolved. What a, what a time for a need for innovation in that business, right? How are they going to adapt? And then once we can get together, will it look different or what, what will look different about those type of events, you know? Absolutely. I mean, there's so much experimentation happening. I mean, as I mentioned, I come from MTV and a lot of my old MTV colleagues are behind Live by Live, which is doing really well. I'm a big fan of Veeps which is a partnership with the Madden brothers and Kyle, who used to be at Cinematique. He's created what they've done. They put so much money in artist pockets at a time that people couldn't tour anymore. And they also really proved out what people will pay for a live experience. I think, you know, Live by Live has a subscription model primarily. And and we've just seen all these different things. It's definitely exciting to see where these things are going. And then also, where will it translate? Yeah. Well, I know you're always doing things like taking clients around at CES or things like this, but what what kind of work are you doing today? What's an example of a client today for you? A client today is really trying to align and figure out 
something that like one of the projects I'm working on, which I can't freely speak on, but I can say is a, a partnership where we're going to sort of rebuild the purchase process of an archaic industry. So we that's one thing that I've seen happen across the board. I mentioned with Hyundai having to look at digital retail solutions and fast track all of those roadmaps. And I think we've seen that in a lot of businesses. You know, we can't rely on, you know, I was just watching something about Daunt books in England and how browsing is the main way people are buying books. Now, books are actually doing pretty well right now because people have wanted to be immersed into another world. However, browsing, how do you do that? You know, what does that look like? And so it's finding the projects that I'm working on are, are figuring out how do we browse. Some of my clients, it's internal things. I'm very interested in how we harness emerging talent right now for companies we, I don't mind remote work. You may not mind remote work. But if I think back to the times I was an intern or when I was by the water cooler and I was like, I like what that person does and I want to know what they do. How do we create that virtually? How to create like those spaces? So a little bit of that is internal right now and then external. It's really that how are we going to find randomness again, which I speak a little bit around CES because I'm going to really miss Eureka Park this year. (laughs) You know, I think about that a lot with kind of like the training and events, you know, seminar business, right? And, you know, you look at like every time we have technological change, it seems like, you know, websites at first were just brochures that were online, you know, and like, you know, at first, you know, TV was just people like reading the radio script with the camera in front of them or, you know, until they figure out like what is the kind of what's the medium native way to do it, you know. And there's such advantages to skipping the flights and hotels for training and conferences and stuff like that. There's the downside of, you know, less less bumping into people, less who did you sit next to at the conference, you know, what a thought to look for. Right. But I'm interested in any thoughts you have of, you know, there's so many people that they're claiming to have completely reworked their conference business. At, but the virtual summits are just not engaging the way a real conference is. I'm interested if you have any thoughts of how you think that industry will evolve. I think, you know, I've had a, several experiences by now around this, as I'm sure you have. You know, I can say from the speaker side, it's quite as weird as it is from the audience side. You know, I'll be in a, a room where I'll see a stage manager only. And the next thing I know I'm live and then I get thrown out <laughs> at the end. You know, you, you don't know if your jokes landed, you don't know all of these things, but you know, at the same time you get a large audience, you know, when can lions went live, they had an audience of 700,000. That's quite impressive for something that's usually quite exclusive and on the beach mm-hmm. in that space. But, you know, what I'm seeing is ways and it's, it goes back to this randomness idea. You know, how are we creating serendipity right now? How are we creating these moments? And I've found, I've been in a few different groups that all of a sudden will do, okay, everyone here is now broken out into, because you can do the breakout rooms on Zoom. And that creates, now you're in a, at a table of six random people. And there's so little of that. I think we've also seen that, and this isn't full conference, but I do think it's important to acknowledge what's happening with the Clubhouse app, which, you know, is all audio. Are you familiar with Clubhouse? Yeah, just a bit. Okay. So that too has an element of randomness. It was the first thing that I was doing that I felt like I was at a party. (laughs) Yeah. And for... And for people who don't know, I mean, I was over at my friend, Amy Selhorns, who's an agency owner, who's been on this show. 
And, and she was showing me like what room she's been listening into. But for people who don't know Clubhouse, can you give people just a little 30 second on it? Yeah. So Clubhouse is one, all audio. So what you do is right now it's by invite only, but it's slowly breaking out of that. And you enter rooms that are on specific subjects. And there's a stage where people sort of have hot mics where they're allowed to participate. And then there's an audience and that audience is just there to listen. So it would be a lot like if we were in Clubhouse right now, maybe some people would want to be listening, (laughs) that kind of thing. And then you can put your hand up from the audience if you'd like to join the stage. And in that space, you know, initially it was a lot of tech founders. Felicia Horowitz hosts Friday night or is it Saturday night or Friday night dinner? There you go. It's a weekend. And she hosts that. Gail King is always there. She always has a theme. She did an amazing one about how COVID was affecting the Black community. And she had a number of doctors on stage for that. You also see a lot about Bitcoin and what's happening in that space. And really, it's a variety. I, the other night, was Barry Jenkins, who directed Moonlight and If Beale Street. They did, there's a Chop House Beale Street mashup that happened. And he and the Chop House DJs went on to Clubhouse and talked about it. And it was one of the most phenomenal conversations I've ever heard. I also quite enjoy it after the Real Housewives of Potomac. They also have rooms. (laughs) That's so funny. You know, I think that for me, I really like that description you said about it's more like a party Mm -hmm. because I remember we just, you know, it's on on our iPhone, we flip it open and it like, it wasn't like a webinar. It wasn't like a podcast. It wasn't like those other things. It was like, it was like, it was like a party. People are just having this conversation about a bunch of stuff and you can listen in or not listen in or flip to the next room. And interesting in the sense of it's not AR, VR, some craziness that way, but yet it is definitely an experience that I don't think has been done on audio elsewhere. At least I, I'm not aware of anything, right? No. And they really started out as a party. So when you join, they immediately, they go through your phone and anyone who's in your phone gets a little notification saying, Hey, Mordecai's joined Clubhouse. Come welcome her. And that's where the party begins, is that suddenly you're in a room and, you know, you get to see friends you haven't heard from or that kind of thing in a while. And you all get to be together and kind of say, hey, it's nice to see you. What's up? I didn't know you were dropping by. So they started off as a party and it just kind of keeps on going from there. But yes, I think the simplicity of audio right now, you know, so many people are exhausted from the interface that we are on right now of Zoom You know, I have a colleague that I speak with every week while she gets her steps in. And she's like, thank you so much for being the meeting I can do while I get my steps in. You know, I've done a couple meetings on my Peloton, you know, where I can just listen. I don't want to, this is, this can be a laborious time to always be on video and so on. I'm quite enjoying this one, but overall, and so it is nice to have audio and Clubhouse stays on, even if you're kind of close it from your screen. So I can be on Instagram when I'm on it. I can be responding to emails and still here. Yeah. It's funny when Amy was describing it to me, how it didn't, like, I wasn't getting it. And then as soon as we start doing it, I was like, oh, this is different. This is cool. You know? Yeah, Um, absolutely. Well, shift it. I want to shift gears a little bit. Um, We talked a minute about this before the show, but this year, one of our big themes is we're going to be talking a lot more about how can entrepreneurs make their company more sellable if they, you know, not that they have to sell it, but if to have that option at some point. And as we were saying, as I was saying beforehand, like there's this element that 
I think it's discounted sometimes. We hear a lot about, in the M&A community, we hear about discounted cash flows and what's the, what's the future income stream this buyer is purchasing from us if we're selling our company, right? But we don't always get as much on, well, what about the exciting stuff? What about the, the sizzle? What about the, like, get the emotional juices going when, you know, some private equity intern is like sorting a whole bunch of companies. What makes ours stand out that they want to go deeper on it and bring it up to the investment committee or something like this. And so I'd love to hear your initial thoughts of somebody who they're really good at their business, but they're concerned that maybe their business is a little bland, just any principles of, of rethinking their business or getting out and having a little serendipity to, to help come up with some ideas from outside their industry. Well, you know, I I work with a lot of founders and there is nothing bland about the founder personality, (laughs) meaning that you have a passion and that can weigh a little bit, especially when challenged, you know, so if you had an idea two years ago, I'm going to use the loathsome word pivot, but you've had to do that right now and and to rekindle that same passion when you're, because Oftentimes when we end up in these disruptive periods, it can feel like you're just trying to keep things afloat, get it to the sale, and you may have forgotten why you started it all. And so I think it's always important to remember, who am I? What do I want to put out there? Because even if you sell, it's still who you are that they're buying into a little bit. They're buying into your vision that you had. And that will always be cool to me as long as you keep remembering that it's cool. So, you know, what is that purpose? And oftentimes, you know, you can have the business running, but it's finding those elements. And, you know, a lot of companies that I'm speaking to, you know, we mentioned a little bit on emerging talent and how do you recruit in that space, but there's so much going on that maybe isn't the forefront of your business, but can be something attractive to investors. You know, how are you doing hiring practices? How are you making sure that your technology base is working without bias? You know, how are you creating these things to attack the larger issues at play or make it such a passionate business? You know, even if you are selling one piece of a technology board, you know, that's all you have, or or one piece of software that you've created that implements into a larger system, there are still practical things that you're putting together in that, that through your transparency, make an attractive company from a lot of the folks that I'm speaking with, is they want to see how your practices are challenging the norm or reflecting who you are and those passions. Yeah. You know, I think about specifically if, if we talk to maybe more of a baby boomer business owner, right? Who they've had the business for 35 years already and their wife saying like, I finally want to go see the grandkids or the husband saying like, hey, remember how we were supposed to spend a lot more time on the beach? And, and she's like, okay, you know, and now they're getting serious about what does it look to package up the business, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they've become an expert at what they do and they, they're very good at servicing their existing customers but maybe they don't have as great a growth story, you know, of like, hey, here's, here's this viewpoint we have on how the world is going to change and how we are going to be ahead of the competitors for that. Do you have any books or any ideas or, or if people are trying to generate more of those ideas amongst their team and think about this, any exercises, recommendations for someone who wants to go down that path? Well, you know, 
it is the baby boomer thing because they're, you know, at that moment. But I also think of all of the people that are in a retire early mindset, which is so millennial. So the idea that even if they have been, you know, I know people that are millennial, are, do you qualify as a millennial? I am officially the oldest millennial. I was born in 1980. Wonderful. So in that space, you know, it's like you may have things that you've done for 10 years that you may want to find a space for. So I, I, see, I hear it for the boomers, but I also hear it for younger generations who are all looking to retire early. That was the plan in that space. And obviously there's been a few hiccups in that. But I think in that space, what I just look towards is, you know, finding, you, you know, it goes back to what I said about if whatever that passion was, but then also leaning on some of the other people that may be able to see something different. So if you're siloing in your company and you're not speaking to other people, and it goes into that conference conversation that we were having of how are we adapting in that? You know, there is something, you know, I hear a lot from boomers and otherwise of, well, cancel culture is scaring me. You know, that maybe there's something in my business that someone's going to find and they're just, I'm, I'm out. I'm not going to be considered anymore. And, you know, the thing about cancel culture is that if you show up to it and you answer it, you will survive it. It's thinking that you don't have the solution. It's thinking that you're done and what has happened is over in that space that will lose you in cancel culture. So when I think about a boomer looking to retire and visit the grandkids and have that beautiful time, I think it's find that passion. It goes back to what was said about finding that passion and moving it forward. I think aligning with sort of some of the goals of other companies, you know, it's just like writing a book proposal. Who else is doing it? What am I doing that's still unique around it? And how is it going to help you move forward in that space? Actually, I think that's a great format. Like those are great questions, right? Imagine doing that with your team, you know what I mean? And having, you know, bringing everybody who's, you know, actually on the front lines with the customers, you know, bring like having, you know, all levels of the organization being included in those type of questions, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just, it's super important to be listening. You know, I, it's overused coming into 2021. I've been calling it this sort of age of accountability. And in that a lot of, cause I work a lot with bigger brands on the corporate side and in that space, it's how are you going to be accountable? Some of them have C-suite bonuses now tied to diversity and inclusion. How is that going to exist? How does one make sure that there's not developmental abandonment happening in that space? And just making sure that we're listening at all times to what can happen because we're only going to be able to learn through that space. So if I'm going to be accountable, I need to sort of learn where my weak points are and and show up to them in, in these interesting spots. And so, you know, yeah, I think about that. Yeah. I'm interested, you know, obviously not everyone listening today can hire you, right? So trying to think of the most value we can provide to them. When you think about the process, you get a new client, they want to do something interesting, you're excited about it. What does that process look like for you? What are, you, what are the steps that you're going through with a new client? Well, depends on the kind of client. So if it's a new company, so one of my clients right now is a tech company that really came up during COVID. 
and I'm working with them on getting acquired. So in that situation, they're quite culturally relevant and that's a bit of like shaping them up and then getting them ready for that acquisition side. On the other side of things. Let's stay there. Stay there? Yeah, let's stay there. So yeah, tell me about some of the questions you asked them that they hadn't considered yet. Or tell me about, you know, some of that process. Well, I always am not a life coach in any way, shape or form. So let me be very clear there. I think sometimes some of the questions you ask founders, someone will be like, you're like a life coach. I'm like, not a life coach (laughs) at all. I am only minded on you making money, (laughs) which I think life coaches are into as well, but I'm business oriented. So I hope your well-being is good and I want you to be happy, but I'm interested in you making money. So a lot of those conversations are on what you want. So I work with a lot of female founders and quite frankly, it's what kind of lifestyle do you want to be leading? There are a number of women that, you know, are, it's a great time to be a woman in business because the entire concept that you can't work from home and have your children around has been completely thrown out the window which is incredibly exciting for founders. But on the flip side, it's some of them want to take those two years off. So what does that look like? How do I create a company, still keep my foot in the door, but I'm also going to take a year or two years off right now. So I work with a handful of female founders in that space. And in that, we're just looking at what does that look like? How do you, are you financially and committed long-term to make sure that the company doesn't skew this way while you take a maternity leave or similar. So I like to just first get into what are you looking for long-term? Yeah. So this anonymous client, we won't talk who they are, but in that case, in that case, how did that, when they answered that, how did that steer the conversation? It steered the conversation into making sure that whoever acquires them, that they get a salaried role at the company, that they're not just bought out and the technology is taken and off it goes, but that they have a significant executive stake in that company, that they also cover companies that we're looking at for acquisition, that they kind of come in and also help that company in certain ways. And really, it ended up being developing them as an executive more than as a founder. Interesting. What's an example? An example of like trying not to talk about that client. (laughs) Sure. But, but in your mind, what's it, what's the difference between a founder and an executive? Um, The difference being in how do you quantify that publicly? So for instance, I don't consider myself a founder. I consider myself an executive. And the difference in that is that I work for quite large organizations, usually globally, And I'm a part of, in my world in innovation, disrupting how those organizations work. I don't really sit on my own company and disrupt my own company for the world. I go into storied industries and figure out how we're going to modernize or get culturally relevant and similar. So to me, that's the dividing line. You know, there are so many people that claim to do that or say that they want to do that. And what do you think that you've done different where, you know, you've risen to the level that you have, you are actually doing it instead of just manifesting that you would like to do it sometime. What do you, what do you think you've done different? You know, I, I've attributed a lot to it because I've been looking at that recently. I've I've been asked that (laughs) a little bit. 
you know, and I always steer away. So, you know, I'm, I'm anonymous. I have this one name. And, and oftentimes when people first meet me in companies or I'm first hired, they're like, oh, well, we needed a Mordecai. We needed a Mordecai here. And then I'm supposed to fix all the problems and, and it's me. The thing about it is that's not how I work. I have a team. I create strategies that work across the organization. It's not the me show. You know, obviously I, I am who I am, but I'm here for the teamwork in that space. So in terms of implementing it and like how it really is, it's being the solution-minded person. You know, we spoke earlier about, you know, you were sharing how you came up with, you know, art school, you left and so on. And, and I did quite a similar thing. I went to film school and I dropped out to tour with music artists and then I got to work. You know, that was just always the thread. And for me, I try and make sure that everything that I've done is contributing to it. So I, I, one of my big credos as an innovator is there's hope via disruption. I write about it often because in the, you know, when COVID hit, I wrote an article around, this is our time innovation marketers. You know, this is like everyone, you know, what you said earlier, you know, marketers and innovators, that's the, the key sauce right now. But, you know, innovation happens in small ways and it happens in really big radical ways. So we spoke about the augmented reality, which for some may look like the big shiny object, but it's also changing the AI technology company to be one that maybe is looking and pushing the boundaries a little bit more contextually. And that's where we need to move, that everything isn't the big flashy surprise. And, and that's sort of how I've addressed it is I, I like to solve things. I like to figure out how things work. You know, I'd never worked in auto before and I was excited for the challenge. And now I understand the industry. So I'm learning always, but I'm also learning in a way that I will, I'd like to question things and then fix them. Yeah. You know, going back to this, you know, helping a client prepare for acquisition. So I really like this idea of asking the question, what's the result you're looking for? And do you look the part for that? Do you know what I mean? Like, does your, you know, does the company story, do, does your personal brand story match up with the type of acquisition you would like to have, right? And thinking that through in advance before the negotiations start, right? And, and doing that preparation. What, what's another thing that you talk to them about for preparing for acquisition? Well, it goes in line with this, but, you know, I think sometimes... I've encountered founders that are like, well, then I'll get acquired and then I'll be on visiting the grandkids, you know, and they're 30. <laughs> but, you know, it's that immediate thing. And I don't know many founders that really do give it up. They, can, can I tell you a quick story on that? Yes, please. So at 24, no, 20, I just turned 25. I set this goal to be a millionaire at 25 and I left Citigroup the year before and I hit my goal like, I don't know, a couple months before 25. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. You know, like the, the thought was I could just buy some passive income. We're not going to be super rich, but you know, we have, you know, as like 24 year olds, five grand a month sounded like a lot of money. Okay. And and so I just started surfing. I thought maybe I'd like get into competitive surfing or something. And like three weeks later, my wife was like, you are bored. You cannot stay home anymore. Like, why don't you just go see if you can do 10 times that much, you know? And, and I did and proceeded to lose it all and go broke afterwards. But, but the point was like, yeah, it lasted for about three weeks. And then it was like this meaningless life. And am I just going to, you know, like sleeping until 10 and kind of go surfing and didn't have a lot going on. And like within three weeks, she gave me out of the house to like go do something again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I also find it so much that it is like 
you know, the bear and the bulls, basically, you know, I work with founders that tell me how much they need to have a month and I go stop. That's not like, if you sat with me and said, I just need like 5k a month, I'd be like, stop. (laughs) That's not, that's not realistic. That's not functioning. It's not jump change. Like I'm not, but that is not what I'm here for. And then on the other side, I get the, I want a million every month. And so it is that, where's that middle bowl, you know? And of course that comes down to the business and what is actually possible. But I spend a lot of time raising the amounts that are actually, you know, what your actual burn rate is. Because sometimes I get companies that come in and they're like, yeah, that we've been doing it on this. And I'm like, that won't hold for a while. (laughs) And then other companies, I'm like, how many trips did you take? How did you put that on the business? Yeah. That side. So it is finding the middle in that. Sure. So let's, let's go for another principle. So I really like how you keep talking about serendipity and running into things. I'm such a nerd for like IDEO when they're like, you know, go to the magazine section at Barnes and Noble and go read the magazines you would never pick up and, and see like ideas that people like you would normally not bump into or like, Steven Johnson's got that book, Where Great Ideas Come From, about mm-hmm. liquid networks and bumping into stuff. And it's, it's part of how this podcast got started. It's like, I thought I could create my own artificial, my own digital liquid network of meeting all these people who I'm not normally going to bump into, you know, yeah. any, any, I mean, staying on that principle for one second, any, what does that look like for you? Or what, what recommendations do you have for entrepreneurs for doing more of that? For having the randomness? Yeah. Bumping into more ideas. Well, every, I mean, the first off, it's that everyone has something to say. So everyone has their story of how they came to be and how they approach life. And, you know, I think it's actually something that I really like that Brene Brown says, which is so typical, but, (laughs) but she talks about the wilderness and about, you know, meeting people and making and realizing that you don't have to have everything in common. So they don't have to be one of the six people you'd want at the last dinner party you have and the most inspiring person ever and someone that could fund your company and maybe introduce you to your future partner. That it could just be that they inspired you for two minutes. And that was exciting. And then also in that transaction, what I say to people, it's what am I doing for you too? So too often I find that people are looking for that. So like all of those things in that wilderness of like how many, you know, oh, I need someone to fund. I want to be inspired. I want to have a new trajectory in life. And I'm looking in all of these corners, but I have found that I find that randomness by saying, now, how can I help you? Or how am I being of service in that day? So if I am out and about and I see someone looking at a book, it's saying, oh, starting to chat with them. You know, I, the biggest thing that I miss right now is hopping on a tube or a subway and seeing what other people are reading, seeing how they're functioning with each other, watching like a random break dance happen, watching people flirt, you know, getting annoyed by closeness of others, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. And I say that because it's, you know, there has to be a transaction. I read on the subway. So then I'm sharing that with you and making sure that we're connecting in a holistic way and not in a taking way. So I want all of this randomness, but how am I creating it as well? So how am I offering that to others? Am I randomly sitting with someone? You know, I know we've talked a bit about the emerging talent side, but I really upped my mentorship during this time. So I'm mentoring for BBH. I just mentored for Fast Company. 
just, I also am incredibly loyal to my stable of mentees and so on. I reach out to my mentor, that kind of thing, and really making sure that there's a consistent cycle. Because if I'm around that, like my BBH mentee was like, I want you to meet this person, you know, then I'm, I'm having random connections. You know, I, I do think of myself a bit as a sponge, you know, I'm a real audiobook nerd and I get to interview all these cool people and I'm, I really get a lot of energy out of connecting and meeting new people and stuff. But it is funny how often taking the time to talk to somebody who, who maybe is in a position where they don't appear to have as much to offer, right? They're, they're more in the learning mode than the teaching mode, right? And as I'm sitting there talking to them about what they're going through, I'm like, wow, that's really good advice. I should actually eat my own dog food there. Like I should eat my own cooking. Like, why, why aren't I doing that? You know, like, it is one of those things that I, I often, like, it's the cliche that like the teacher gets more out of the lesson than the student. But yes. I, I sure find that sometimes. I find that's absolutely true. You know, I, if I have creative work I have to do, I often schedule it in my day right after like a mentee session. Cause I know I'll be a little bit on fire then. <laughs> yeah, that's a good hack. Let's go for another principle. When, when somebody engages you and you and the team, you're doing the strategy, you're, you're trying to help this client make progress towards innovation, mm-hmm. um, specifically in a marketing direction. What's, what's another principle? What's another tried and true one that you're typically taking clients through or helping them think through? You know, part of my work is also to provide the buffet. <laughs> So, you know, I, we spoke a little bit about CES and I do do a lot around CES in that space. But then also one thing that I implemented at a notion that I created was an innovation briefing period. And so it was working hand in hand with the more linear strategy side and then taking it and expanding it. So my brief would cover 25 different things across technology and culture and competitive a little bit to be looking at, because then it allows people that runway. Unfortunately, when you have innovation on the door, people come by and say, what's that? Can we do that in VR? Oftentimes they're referring to AR (laughs) when they come by or, oh, can you help me with this AI thing? And it's just innovation is so much more than that (laughs) in that space. So it's my responsibility to provide the buffet. So one of the things that I do in in the larger company clients is I make sure that I'm consistently providing that buffet, that it's not my job to always provide strategy and then creative idea and make sure to make sure that, again, if I leave in that space that I've created the atmosphere for innovation, that the lab is there. One of my colleagues in London calls it making sure that the rough diamonds have risen to the top. She says that there's innovators across organizations, a notion I call them inquisitors, that kind of thing, that the, those who are curious have found that they have that option to start exploring more, but really making sure that I am providing people so that I can find their interests. It goes into a larger consultancy or a larger role at that point, because then I can also see what people are gravitating towards by providing the buffet. You know, am I dealing with a bunch of vegans or a bunch of keto? (laughs) You know, what's happening there? And then steer that through. Yeah. I'm interested where you're so immersed in this world. When you look at others who are doing it right, as far as innovations that actually serve a business purpose, they're not just a whiz-bang stunt. Who, who are some of the groups that you look up to? Like, what are some examples of people you think are doing it right? I'm a huge fan of Mary Portis. Do you know who Mary Portis mm. is? Okay. 
Mary Portis runs the Portis Agency that used to be Yellow Door in the UK. She's also known as Mary Queen of Shops. <laughs> so she had some telly shows on Channel 4 for a while where she helped sort of high street businesses in the UK. She has a book out most recently called Work Like a Woman, which really puts forward this concept that she had spent much of her career, uh, she was a creative director at Harvey Nichols and so on, really playing the man's game. And she realized that her success is being a woman and owning that. But in terms of innovation, the Portis Agency released the Kindness Economy. So a bit of a future trends report and a way to implement that into business. And Mary Portis was on top of this kindness economy before COVID hit. And it really puts forward all of the things that have now been needed now more than ever. So what is your social justice initiative? What is your inclusion setup? Also, what are you doing that's just good for other people through being a retailer? And I am so inspired when I see how she's gone about that. She just really wanted to make sure that any work that they're doing is putting good into the world, but she's not, not a businesswoman in that. You know, it's, there is a complete focus because she works so much in retail. There is a bottom line of like, you know, these are fast moving consumer goods, or these are luxury fashions or similar, like these are her clients. So it's definitely not a, we don't care about the bottom line. We're not here to grow revenue. This is not her company. And I am just incredibly inspired by her in that space. Very cool. What's another one? I think overall, I'm a huge, I'm intrigued and I appreciate what Peloton does. I am a Peloton community member. And I think that says it all how I just said it. (laughs) So I remember being at CES and walking in and they had a couple bikes on the right hand side and John the founder was there and he was like, this is the bike and I was a spinning person. But I was like, I don't know about this. Like, I like being in the room. Like, you know, I, I, I like the instructors, like this is a TV screen. Like I could put a TV screen in front of an exercise bike. Like I, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, this was a few years ago, obviously. And, and I didn't get it, but I, I'm really the way that company people like don't get it even today. I get it now. Cause I'm in it, but it's not the bike. It's great bike. It's not the treadmill, great treadmill. It's that community. I mean, I can't, there are not enough words to put together how much I love that community and the way that is. And to me, cultural innovation, that is the bottom line. It is the building of community. It's the inclusion of that. It's the immediate being able to move through different things. So, you know, when we had the larger uprising following the deaths of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, Peloton was there. Now, that would not be something you would normally expect from a high-end fitness retailer, but they are about community and that responsiveness, that way in which they are, that sort of innovation is what I want to see in the future because it is human-driven. You know, I work a lot with folks over at Reddit and so on, and we're always saying, be human. You have to be human. So when I also see innovation in that, obviously, the kindness economy is a human, you know, be human movement, but... Those sorts of technology innovations that are focused on the human parts are the things that inspire me. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you talk about that story. One of our other guests on the show is a good friend of mine. He's a securities lawyer in New York, Josh Soloway. 
And I remember, I think I was staying at his house and he was saying, he was telling me he's got this Peloton bike. Do you know what that is? No. And he told me, told me how much it costs. And I was like, hold on, what is it? And he's like, it's like this exercise bike, but it's got this screen and you like compete. And I was like, that sounds like a really expensive exercise bike, buddy, <laughs> you know? And then, you know, as you find out more and you talk to the people who they really do it, there's that, it's crazy how that connection is available. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like this remote connection that they've, it feels like they've done right, at least my observation. I'm interested in your, your thoughts on this. There's so many different kinds of memberships and subscriptions like coming out the wazoo these days, right? And yet there are some folks that they really, like community is a good word. You know, they're not just a subscriber, they're a member. Do you, do you have any thoughts about cultivating the difference of people who might have subscribers now, but would rather have members that they don't want just uh, recurring revenue, they want this connection? Yeah, I mean, I one, I should say, you know, I love myself. Like I'm a bit of an Anglophile. I've, I've lived there for a long period of time and I love members clubs. You know, I'm a huge fan. I was part of the Soho house opening in downtown Los Angeles where I'm based now. You know, I really enjoy the connectivity that can come from that. I recognize the exclusionary practices of that. If you're thinking about that in a full business model, but the, but the difference of subscription or membership in that. And there are so many things happening. There's a lot of conversation about will travel become like a Netflix service. You know, there's some dialogue around that when you think about the future, because travel has been so hit right now, that kind of stable, like economy kind of appeals to quite a few people, but will that transpire? But in that, I think that in terms of membership, and the future. I this is where I think we're going to have the fix. So when we spoke about when I think about the emerging talent, when I think about the interns that are only getting assignments that don't have the walk around and the lunch times and all of that, I think who's going to fix that? And I think it comes with from members clubs. And I think it comes from membership organizations. And not all of these are exclusive Soho houses or or something like that, or a Neuhaus. But looking at a lot of the groups, I have just been this year involved in She Runs It, which is in New York. And they've just added Embolden into that, which is a mobile tech first. So all that's about 10,000 women now networked in a group. And they do a lot around mentorship and so on. There's Albright in the UK, which is a bit of a female Soho house. But then there's also Bloom. There's She Says. There's Women in Innovation you know, all of these things that are providing that people can then claim membership of that shows sort of the way you're thinking. You know, if I tell you that I support She Says and I'm in Women in Innovation and like you kind of start to build this character and it's where are we going to have that randomness? And I'm finding, I mean, Solo House has it in their app where you can just sign up to have a call with another member and they arrange it. Like, no, you don't pick who it is. So it's a random person on the other oh, end. Really? Yeah. It goes into, the, and the clubhouse concept, it's all of these sort of, you know, I don't know if you would say I'm a member of clubhouse, but I don't think you wouldn't. <laughs> so, yeah. Cause you're like part of the community. Yes. And when I think of subscriptions, I think that there's a little bit of an oversaturation. You know, I want to be mindful of where our economy is, is right now and is headed You know, I think when I think about subscriptions, I think of my television and I think about the fact that, okay, so we cut the cord and now we have like 20 different subscriptions. That's not going to keep going. (laughs) So 
I don't know if people are going to love their subscriptions. You know, it's interesting. One of the themes I picked up on what you're saying is an idea of thinking about how can our community, how can our membership give people an identity? You know, how can it kind of serve a bit of like, you know, all humans, whether we admit it or not, the way we dress, the way we do our hair, we're signaling to other people stuff about ourselves. And like, it's, it's a quick shorthand for others to make assumptions about us based on what we believe about ourselves and what we drive or don't drive, what we eat or don't eat, what, you know, these are all signals, right? And, and a membership can be a signal, right? And uh, you think about the the digitization of society and how much screen time we have, And I guess to me, it does feel like there will be a premium based on really great connections, you know, really great connecting memberships because, you know, our phones are getting only more and more addictive, right? And if we can stay home and do more business over Zoom, it does feel like the people who can do connection right may may have an advantage. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing that I'll I'll bring up because it's a subject that I care a lot about is I think we've also seen a lot of people claim membership. So, and I mean that in terms of politics and justice side, you know, there's a really great event of called Allyship in Action that Nate Nichols began with his partner. And it really puts forward this idea of making sure, like Allyship is not something like I, for instance, couldn't say, hi, my name is Mordecai, I'm an innovation executive and I'm an ally. It's not for me to proclaim. It's for you to say, oh, you've done all of these things. You're, a real, you're such an ally to X because my actions have proven it. And it goes back to the cancel culture thing I was speaking about, about the overt listening now being time of accountability. The, the black boxes, like these things that are like, oh no, we, we care. I'm a, I'm a member of the people that care club. <laughs> I'm the member of this movement because I'm, I'm bothered by it today. And I think that that really needs to be backed up by action. And I'm excited to see people own their memberships. You know, so if I am a member of something, if I am an ally in that space, what am I doing about it? Yeah, you know, we've sure seen that over the last decade with our charity, with Child Rescue Association. You know, when we started 10 years ago, like the percentage of Americans that we would talk to that realized it was happening to American born kids here at home. I mean, it's just minuscule. Mm -hmm. And then movies like Taken came out, which really opened a lot of people's eyes. I think that movie did more good than all the documentaries put together and CNN hero projects and all the, you know, and it's, it's, you know, what had been mislabeled underage prostitution, which sounds like underage willing participation, you know, Mm -hmm. gets, gets, you know, relabeled as child abuse for money or, you know, these, you know, and I mean, just, I mean, there's, there's multiple, it feels like there's multiple anti-trafficking charities started per week in this, you know, from our perspective of what this landscape was like a decade ago. Right. And, you know, there's, there's companies that, you know, they, it's, they've got a little thing on the tray when you're getting your fast food or that, you know, like, and it's, it's nice to see it. It's nice to see more people are, making it a subject because if it stays in the dark, it's going to keep happening. And then at the same time, it's also disappointing when that only lasts for 90 days and then it's on to the next thing. And, you know, there's maybe there's a lot of talk, but not a lot of action, right? Yeah. I mean, if you go to any of my social profiles, not LinkedIn, but you'll see that I identify as an activist and an ad woman. And 
to me, that's because my career in activism made me the ad woman that I am. Much of what we spoke about today and much of the guiding principles that I have, I learned through activism. That was my school. MTV a little bit. But, you know, and I was an activist when I worked at MTV. So there's a great story of me leaving on my voicemail. If, you, if you're getting this voicemail, it means that I was arrested last night in an action. I'll be back tomorrow. <laughs> my boss and I always have a laugh about it when we get together now. And, you know, in that space, and I think it's just, it's a long time. You know, there's a lot of things personally, you know, part of that journey is, You know, I did a lot of AIDS activism following ACT UP, silence equals death work, but also like the first time I hit the streets because of the murdering of Black citizens of America was for Amadou Diallo. And that was in 99. And I hit the streets this year. Yeah. And I I don't say that, like, give me the halo of membership in that group, but I just mean like, it's a long amount of work. You know, we recently had a win here from Black Lives Matter LA about the DA here. It took three and a half years of every week protesting on Wednesdays, and now she's not the DA anymore. It's a lot. Well, yeah, and it's interesting. You know, and obviously there's there are so many there are so many causes, and people are entitled to different opinions about different things, right? And and some of them get a lot of press from the news, and some of them don't. You know. But to me, you do think about this like for, for a brand, for a business owner, it seems like a totally terrible idea to get on what happens to be popular. Oh, this is the one, this is the one we'll be behind. Because if you're, if you don't really, if you don't really live it, it's going to, you know, it has a real potential to end up, it would have been worse had you not gotten, it would have been better for you to have not gotten involved in the first place on certain issues, right? If you're not going to stick with it. But then you look at these brands who like they really live it in the bones and this is what this is what they do. You know, like an issue that is not as, you know, nearly as exciting or polarizing or in the news, or whatever, but helping with education in the developing world, right? One of our consulting clients are a big publicly traded billion dollar construction supplies company called BMC Building Supply, right? And they are really behind this. And so like, instead of like taking their sales reps to Hawaii, like if you win the president's club, they take you to Mexico to go do service and help build a school, you know? And it wasn't just something from, you know, a a CSR person, you know, corporate social responsibility person or somebody in marketing that just got stuck. It just got stuck on top of some packaging that was already going out. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're actually living and then they do it year after year. And then it's, you know, it gets baked in and it becomes a, a retention thing that helps, right? It becomes a, it becomes a, an advantage when customers find out about that, you know, like when they find out you're really living it, right? It's funny, authenticity is such a overused word right now. And yet for what it really means is extremely valuable for speaking to your tribe, right? Yes, I think authenticity, though, is also the the learning and asking questions and allowing for an element of failure in it, too. You know, I don't think I loved your example of your client and the work they do. UTA does that as well, where they send teams to help do a lot of work. And, you know, what I see in all of that is this commitment to putting that forward, but we will make mistakes in that process. And I don't think a lot of the larger brands, I don't think the luxury is there anymore. You know, we're at a time period where there's a lot of questions on who's meant to save who right now. And a lot of that is falling on some of the larger companies. You know, how are you going to 
everything from help distribute, and I'm not going down the rabbit hole here, but help distribute a vaccine or help, like all of these things are falling significantly on corporate shoulders more than before, where you could sort of be under the radar. You know, you have a generation that is looking. They are looking to align with brands. I mean, the stats are out there. I'm happy to put them in your podcast notes, but you know that that brand values and having that consistently out there is a requirement for your future consumers if you are public facing in that space and like making sure that that's there. Also, little exposures. Oh, you know, Boohoo, which is a fashion retailer in the UK, got a lot of bad flack when they found that certain labor practices were happening and they had to address it immediately, obviously for these fundamental ways, but just also they allowed for their failure and they kept showing up to it. You know, they kept allowing that conversation to happen because even if they've sort of outsourced certain things, they're still responsible for it. And the thing is, is that right now, be it for climate, be it be it for inclusion or otherwise, we're definitely seeing a generation say, I want to make sure that you have a portfolio that reflects something that I'm on board with. And I think you see that in great ways with a brand like Patagonia really stepping up and staying true to who they are. Yeah. It's also interesting to me how that the cause that matters really changes with the audience. Do you know what I mean? Like the, you know, do you live close to the ocean? Do you live in the middle of the country? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like what, what country, what country are you in? Like, you know, some of the stuff with, with Nike in Japan, right? Obviously wasn't as connected to the customer there. And And this idea of like, I don't know, I guess digging into our customers even better instead of, instead of generalization, it's that humanizing thing of like, what do they personally care about? You know, I, I think about, you know, there's so many like ways that a company can do good in the world, but sometimes I think it's interesting, like what Warren Buffett did at Berkshire Hathaway, where he let the shareholders vote. They're like, Hey, instead of us telling you where, where Berkshire's money is going to go, they let all these shareholders vote and say, and like, according to the percentage is where the percentage of it went. And this like involvement from their customer, that was a really interesting model instead of, you know, instead of just from the top. And, you know, I I was thinking about this literally this week, I was thinking, you know, we've had this charity for 10 years, but, and our staff and employees get to help out with it here and there, but have we really like set aside as much time as we could for them to consistently get, get to be involved instead of just, be involved with the company that helps it. Can they personally be involved with it? You know, mm-hmm. anyway. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, I'm on the U.S. Board of Skate Stand, which does skate schools and educational opportunities in different countries, obviously starting in Afghanistan and Kabul. And then we have a school in Cambodia and Johannesburg. And, you know, in that, I, but oftentimes, like, I don't get to the school. <laughs> So I'm much more in fundraising and that side of things and making sure people know about it and not getting to see the actual work. But luckily there was an Oscar winning film about it. So, Well, and, you know, and for people who don't know, like that's one that really speaks to me personally, right? Because I've got two daughters, two teenage daughters that I've spent years trying to turn into skateboarders and snowboarders and stuff, right? And so when I got to go show YouTube videos of these girls at their skateboard park in Afghanistan. I can't remember how many years ago I came across that. Like that was, to me, that was, it was novel. It was, it was cool. And like, from a value perspective of like, from a values perspective, that one like really sung for me, you know what I mean? 
And anyways, so great work you're doing there. Thank you. <laughs> it's a great organization. Absolutely. You know, and I think when, you know, for me, I'm not a skateboarder, but I think it's a good example of going back to like approaching businesses because years ago when I was still doing shows for MTV, I would, I found out what was happening to female skateboarders. So this is about 15 years ago. And I found out that at the X Games, it's an invitational and the guys would get like $20,000 just for being invited. And then the cash prize was like 150 or something. If you went, I could be a little off, but the gist is going to be there for this. And the women were given no money from the invitational side. And a lot of them were coming from Australia or Belgium, that kind of thing in And if they won, they'd get like 2,500 bucks, which barely covers the flight from Australia and the living and all of that. And, you know, I was, I happened to have the random luck to be talking to a girl that I knew that skateboarded. And I said, I want to do something about this. I want to fight this. Like we got to give some exposure to it. And I said, but if I do it, I need to find the top. And she turned to me and she said, I'm the number one skateboarder in the world. And she was. Wow. Uh, Vanessa, Who is that? Vanessa Torres. Oh, wow. And I was like, well, let's do this, Vanessa. And that kind of got me involved in the skate world, but it was the same thing. And this is what I mean about like these activist things that I did making me the innovator and executive that I am, because I looked at her and I was like, oh, we're going to fight this and we're going to do this via these ways of, because I know business and I know how to make this like, like kind of a fair fight in the X Games world, instead of just like a, a side radical movement, how do we tell these stories? And, you know, when Lacey Baker, who was around them, but very young, joined the Nike team, that was a huge moment for women in skateboards. You now get money if you are invited to the X Games, all of that stuff. It's so exciting to watch it happen. Yeah. You know, I think I have, I have a lot of respect, both for people who go at it structurally, like I had this great conversation last week with this woman who unfortunately had a family member involved in trafficking. She's very high net worth person from the investment community. And what she did is she went after Verizon's shareholders and she was a giant Verizon shareholder. And the way they got Verizon to start monitoring, you know, child exploitation imagery on on Verizon system, and and now they've gone after they've gone after Facebook. And after three years of using the press and investors, Facebook finally called them back. You know, yeah. and I think about, but I also really appreciate the people who they can take up a cause in a way that doesn't alienate others. Like I gotta say, personally, I feel like stuff like equal pay with gender, gender uh, inequality for pay, right? I got to say, they didn't really get my support as a movement when a lot of the messaging came across with all men are wrong. If we could just get rid of the men, everything would be okay, right? Mm -hmm. And I was on the board of directors of UN Women, the the Utah chapter. And we had this, we had this event about this issue. And the person got up and said, hey, anybody here got a daughter or cousin or sister? How would you, how do you feel about they get a job at the same time as your nephew, but they get paid less for it? And I was like, ticked. I was like, all of a sudden, when it wasn't like this kind of like sexist blame of like, just because you were male, you caused this, right? When all of a sudden it was like inclusive of like, you can care about this because you're a dad. All of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I would, I would lose it. You know what I mean? 
like I've got a bunch of friends who are cops and FBI agents and stuff like that. And they were kind of the other day, they're like, because they're these are guys who are like 25 years older than me. And they're like, Jess, what is up with the Black Lives Matter thing? Like, what's burning the stores? And like, I don't get this. And I was like, well, you know, don't get me wrong. It, it's been hijacked in certain ways. But my my brother is married. My sister-in-law, Keisha, is, is Black. Her family's from St. Vincent. And my nieces and nephews are like really dark skinned to the point that at the grocery store, I asked my pasty looking brother, hey, whose kids are those? We have a joke about it. Okay. And I said, you know, my nephew, my nephew and my son are walking down the street and my nephew gets arrested because he's black. I'm going to be pissed. I'm going to be super ticked about that. Like that's, that's what's going on. Like the news and the extremism and the polarized media who, who, you know, let's face it, if you're like a cop and an army guy and a FBI agent, there's a higher chance you're watching Fox News or some, you know, conservative media who put this spin on it instead of this core issue thing, right? And so to me, anyways, I just have the most respect for the people who can bring it together instead of alienating groups in the activism. I think there's, you know, I agree and I then I disagree. Okay. So I, I agree in the terms of, and it goes to being an innovator with a solution mindset. So for instance, you know, because I do straddle this line of activism and advertising, when things hit a peak, I, my phone rings. So I have the calls of, you know, what are we doing? How does this happen? And it's, it's being, to me, it's the same way. And I don't mean to put value around it, but it's the same structure of a conversation of, let me introduce augmented reality technology, or let me in, start talking to you about robots and the importance of this happening. And the way that I have to do that is often saying it like, you already know this, I'm just bringing it up. You know, I talk with robots, I often said to my clients, I said, you know, it's very funny that people treat robots with eyes differently than they do like your Alexa at home. So you may get really mad at Alexa for not understanding you, but if you end up seeing Pepper and Pepper looks at you with those computer eyes, like, I'm sorry, could you say that again? You're like, no problem, Pepper. (laughs) And it is those finding those ways to relate to it and making sure that you're saying, so when I talk about you know, inclusion in terms of interview process, I always say, you know, you guys know we need to be doing structured interviews because structured interviews are based on qualifications. And too often job interviews are done by cultural fit. Oh, I think you would fit in here. I like your vibe. And that immediately creates a non-inclusivity in that process. So if you move to structured interviews that are based on the job spec that you have, you have a higher chance of having inclusion in that process. So when I share something like that, I'm hoping that your listeners and you are hearing it is much more approachable. Like, oh, she offered me a solution that I get, you know, the same way I talked about the robot's eyes and similar. So I completely- And can you give me an example of structured? Of a structured interview? Yeah. It's literally taking your job description and saying, so three to five years of experience on social media. Can you talk me through some of the campaigns that you've had? We're looking for someone that's done a briefing document. Can you show me how you do a brief? You, you know, if it was interviewing me, it would be like, you go to CES. Could you walk me through what you do at CES? Instead of, so tell me, what are your passions? You know, where, where'd you go to school? What you, you know, finding, trying to find these cultural connectors that make me feel like you're in the club with me. You know, therefore, 
we'll, you'll be a great fit here. You know, that's so interesting. I think a lot, because we're trying to build a nationwide sales force for our real estate investment business. And I've been thinking a lot of like, you know, it would be great to intentionally hire like young, ambitious kids who are like first generation from India and young, ambitious kids who are like first generation from Nigeria mm-hmm. to, to specifically go speak to, you know, my friend's dad from India who came over and built like, you know, 12 hotels and is like super successful. Do you know what I mean? And like, when I think about this, like this idea of going and hiring outside of our natural social circles, that's, that's great advice. Are there books or articles or anything that you feel like are there's better thought leaders on that than other ones? I think and it goes to, it'll go to my disagree point, but I really think it's important. And this goes into more of the social understanding of it. But Sonia Renee Taylor talks a lot about, and this is where I sort of disagree, is that you can have inclusion over affinity. That's the way that I've summarized it. But she talks often about the fact that people are seeking that affinity to be able to say, oh, well, if someone that looks like me is there, therefore I can participate in that system. Or I've seen, now I've seen Kamala Harris become the VP. That means I can be a VP. That I I require that affinity. And it translates into my world because that's the problem that I find in marketing is that we're selling it in affinity. So I have to show you this person driving the car to be able to feel like I could buy that car or I could fit in. And so the challenge is how do we actually just create inclusive environments? So I can have inclusion without like an environment where everyone is welcome without seeing myself there. That how do I, how do we as executives, as leaders, as founders create spaces that everyone is welcome, even if everyone's not seen at that moment. So therefore, like you get into these structured interviews as a solution. It's like, I just want to make sure that I'm inclusive to whoever is best for the job and having them show up. I don't need to have that cultural affinity with them in that space. And that really it's about moving towards that inclusion that will get us there. And I think that's really important for marketers, which I think would make Sonia Renee Taylor sort of roll her eyes. But in principle, it is that we've done too much of siloing. So you see multiculturalists siloed over here. And unfortunately what happened to that, you know, normally is that then that budget would get cut. Now, if you have multicultural over here, you're saying that the rest of the media is what, you know, what is that? What is, is it not included? Inclusive? Is it, what is it affinity towards? Why do we have to silo over here? So the future and the way in which I see progress being made is an inclusional space. So like we are inclusive in our marketing from the creative process to the screen to so on. So we don't have to be siloed. And by the way, I'm not alone in that. So that Mediacom has inclusive planning now. Havas has their social equity group. You know, this is a very common conversation happening right now in that space. But to me, it is that philosophy that Sonia Renee Taylor takes, you know, when she talks about, quite frankly, herself, and she talks about the ladder that we all have inside of ourselves, that we have created that. So if I think about that in terms of business, there's no reason that like, I can't be 25 and be a millionaire. And there's no reason that I can't have the workforce that I wish wish to see for an inclusive environment. Interesting. Yeah. Well, it seems like you get to have an interesting life. You get to do a lot of different things. <laughs> I think so. I think it's good to have purpose and to be, you know, focused on that. Very cool. Well, if people want to follow you or connect with you, where's where's the best place? 
Well, I'm the one named Mordecai on LinkedIn, so very easy to find me there and at Miss Mordecai across all social channels other than that, if you'd like to get a little bit more personality. (laughs) That's great. Well, thanks for making time for this. Thank you, Jess. You bet. See you later.